If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by visiting chriscarl.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find links to both Patreon and PayPal, where you can make donations. Any and all support is massively appreciated and a huge thank you to everyone that has supported thus far. where the most deadly animals we have are either teenagers outside of Tesco's or foxes that root through your bins. It's always fascinating to see people to photograph real life, actual dangerous, interesting, exotic animals. But before we get into any of that, let's start off with photography. So why did you pick up a camera in the first place? What made you interested in photography? I I was living in Canada and I was it's kind of a odd story, but I was skydiving. And I wanted to become a skydiving photographer to help pay for my jumps. So I, my grandfather had a bunch of old equipment that was just sitting in his garage, kind of collecting dust. So I ended up trading it in and I bought my very first DSLR. Um, and then, I, you know, I've been diving for a long time. So I started diving when I was 14. And it just kind of the two passions just kind of merged together in about 2015 when I purchased my first underwater housing. And since then, it's it's been 100% underwater that I've been focusing on. Well, America's got animals, North America, that is, has got animals, uh, you know, on land that are fascinating to photograph and are plenty dangerous. And as someone that obviously found hobbies in jumping out of moving planes... <laughs> Is it just a, a willingness to to be terrified and close to death at the same time as trying to photograph or <laughs> what was it that brought all this together? Well, I, you know, for me, I I mean, I really love, I, I do love being in the moment and being in flow. And so I think in all the different activities that I've always undertaken um, throughout my life have, have always kind of centered around that of being in the moment and moments that which make you feel alive. But with underwater, really, it came um, back in, I don't know, uh, 2017. I came across this uh, TED Talk that was presented by Dr. Sylvia Earle, who is a world-renowned scientist, explorer, author. You know, she's uh, an amazing, she's kind of like the Jacques Cousteau of our time. But she delivered this prize-winning TED Talk about uh, locations that are very special, very unique, and they're called hope spots. So they're ecologically unique and scientifically found to have a, an overall impact on global ocean health if they were to be protected. And so I was fascinated by this TED Talk. And I delved a little bit deeper into these various different hope spots. Right now, there's a little over 82 of them around the world. And I came across the story of a little village of the coast of Baja called Cabo Pomo. And in 1995, uh, the village contained about 15 families. So it was very small. Mm -hmm. And they were concerned ab about the protection of their coral reef, which was about 20,000 years old. And so this small little village petitioned their government to create a marine preserve and it happened in 1995. They were successful in doing so. And over the next 14 years, um, the area of Cabo Pulmo uh, basically completely recovered. So it, researchers found a 463% increase in fish biomass with a return of every single species. So I was really inspired by their story of how, you know, this little village um, could have such power and really had that fortitude and, and courage to kind of, you know, take marine protection and marine conservation into their own hands and do something about it. So as soon as I, I saw that and I, I read that, I, I knew right away that I, this is what I wanted to dedicate my career to was ocean conservation and kind of telling these stories and assisting those who are really on the front lines of conservation. Is one of the problems with, I mean, there's a, there's a huge bite I could take out of out of what's going on with with the world in general because it seems like we have a disaster every other minute at the moment, especially you guys over in in North America. But 
is there yeah. is there a situation and and this is a, a bit political for a for a photography podcast but is is it kind of we're in a a point now with the oceans where i feel like as as the human race currently exists we're like two kids arguing in the back of the car over who gets the chocolate bar <laughs> while the car is literally rolling off the the freeway into a ditch and you know there's the potential for quite a lot of death we're sort of arguing semantics in a situation where actually there's this huge problem looming just to the side that we seem to be yeah. paying very little attention to. Uh, and it is so true. And I mean, I, I don't have a, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm just a photographer, but you know, the, the reports that we're seeing from scientists and conservationists, I mean, especially on, with sharks is that, you know, there was a 70, I think it was a 71% decline globally in, in shark species. And the thing is, is that they're a keystone species. So without a healthy population of sharks, I mean, the whole ocean ecosystem is thrown out from everything from, you know, they've shown like, for example, if hammerheads are overfished in an area, then it completely decimates the shellfish population. So that, that happened. They did a study on that, on, uh, on a fisheries in New Jersey. I think it was New Jersey. Um, also, it, it affects the whole like pH. So you get kind of uncontrollable algae blooms. So, I mean, it, it does, uh, it impacts the whole, you know, whole ecosystems and many different economies, not just, you know, it's not just about saving the planet or, you know, liking sharks because they're cute. It, it really, um, it has many, many different consequences that, you know, I think this is the urgency that a lot of the conservationists and scientists are, are kind of hoping that the world pays attention because, you know, I mean, we are in such a delicate spot right now that things can go, you know, one of two ways. Um, and we are a blue planet, you know, the, the ocean, we depend on the ocean for, you know, food, for oxygen, for fresh water, for commerce, for everything. So, yeah, I definitely feel like it's a, it's very, very, you know, very difficult time and, and one that kind of requires like all hands on deck. There's one thing about the vernacular of what's sort of being explained to the everyman at the moment, that I think is my one problem. And I actually think I have a point um, that is worth listening to from people that are significantly smarter than me, which is that we need to, we need to sort of select our outrage. Uh, one mm. thing that I'm definitely seeing way too much of, and it goes way outside of, you know, uh, sort of socioeconomical problems, social political problems, you know, problems with the environment. It's, it's applicable to pretty much anything, but it, it's just stop being outraged by everything because what happens is outrage becomes white noise. Yeah. And the problem with that is that we're going to turn off people that potentially could be, you know, signatures on petitions. They could be people that are voices that politicians have no choice but to listen to for the sake of making everything an outrage. And one thing that comes up quite a lot is, is the, the term irreversible damage. And the problem yeah. with the term, and it might be right, it could be 100% correct, but the problem with the term irreversible damage to someone as, as we would say in England as thick, which in, a, in America apparently means something quite different. It means stupid here. For someone, yeah. as, <laughs> for someone as thick as myself, if you say irreversible damage, I think, okay, so what's the point then? If it's done, it's done. That's the way I think yeah. a lot of people see it. And do you think that, and, and then we'll get back to photography, I promise, do you think that perhaps the, the communication between the incredibly smart people and the layman's like myself could perhaps be improved to kind of get the message across a bit better? A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. But I mean, I think also there has to be that urgency, but, but maybe at a political uh, and corporate level, you know, I, I think that so many people like we, we feel like, yes, we understand that there's a problem, but so many people I feel, feel helpless perhaps, or what can you do, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think you're right in that if there's too many of these emergencies, you know, I mean, people just start to feel powerless and, and that there's nothing that can be done. So let's move it to photography. Cause I feel like that is something that we should probably talk about at some point. Yeah. How does, how does photographing help you sort of spread the message of, of what you're seeing? Well, um, 
what it's allowed me to do is to really understand kind of, um, especially in some of these areas, I've been doing a, a, a little bit more work in, within the Sea of Cortez, which is a location that's it's basically between Baja, California, Mexico, and the Mexico mainland. And so what it's allowed me to do is really kind of develop a, a better understanding of the relationships of the people. Uh, the communities and also within the conservation organizations who are really working so hard. So for me, um, you know, I mean, taking photographs of, of, you know, pretty wildlife or or sharks or whatever it is, is one thing, but it doesn't really do anything unless I'm able to really help the people who are on the front lines. And so that's something that I've been really trying to focus more and more on is by, you know, doing as much as I can to directly help the people who like the biologists and the conservationists and, you know, even the fishermen and the locals, um, you know, to really help them. And photography is one way of doing that is by capturing attention through photographs and through being able to tell the story. Um, so that's kind of been my, my goal. Well, I, I photograph generally people, um, weddings, portraits, headshots, whatever. And uh-huh. they're, they're, a, they're an interesting animal and there's quite a lot of etiquette involved with, with dealing with, with people. They can be, you know, relatively poorly behaved on occasions or uh, you can have to deal with certain mood issues or maybe even hormones um, uh, being an issue. I can only imagine. In terms of, of photographing, let, let's jump with with sharks. I jumped I jumped the gun at the beginning by mentioning Shark Week, so I'm going to talk about sharks. When it comes to just <laughs> okay. sharks in general, obviously there's huge huge differences between different types of sharks. But what what's your etiquette have What does your etiquette have to be like to photograph sharks? Like what what do you have to do outside of being a photographer? Like what do you have to do to be able to a encourage them to come close enough for you to photograph them and b not piss them off so you get eaten? <laughs> well, I mean, number one, they there are definitely rules, and there each species is different. They each have a different vibe, which is one of the things that I absolutely love about them. Um, so it depends on the shark. It depends on the on the behavior. Um, even if there's, um, for example, if they're aggregating or the species. So it you have to have a little bit of knowledge. Uh, the rule number one is always maintain eye contact with them. Um, so they recognize that we're not food. We don't look like food. Uh, and especially if you don't behave like food. So if you're always facing the shark, if you're not fleeing from it, that's always a good idea. Um, and if you're just really... St- kind of standing your ground and maintaining eye contact, they're really approaching with curiosity. Mm-hmm. So um, they they do get interested in the electrics that are given off by the camera. Um, so they will come quite close. And I'd never even thought of that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. But it's always been, I've always had just beautiful, peaceful interactions with them. Um, and I think this is the one thing, you know, there's a lot of shark tourism operations that I, uh, that I dive with in, um, in Cabo. And it's amazing when you see somebody who has been the first time in the water with sharks and you get to see kind of how they now understand, uh, and kind of see the animals in a different light because, you know, Jaws was an amazing movie. I love it. But it unfortunately did, of course, a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people think that if you're in the water with a shark, the shark is just going to immediately come up and bite you or or be aggressive. And it's just not, that's not the case. So it's always wonderful to get into the water with uh, these incredible species and you get to see what they're truly like, which is quite fascinating. Well, you've just said that there's quite quite big differences between the species in in the way that they they interact the way that they behave. How much knowledge do you have to, I mean, there's, there's like so many avenues, like I can't even figure this one out. So you you don't even know what you're going to encounter when you go out, right? Because it's not like you set up a meeting. So when you when you head out to photograph, how much knowledge do you have to have kind of pre-instilled on, on all of these different varieties? Well, uh, for me, for example, if I go to, say, Florida, I know that there's going to be specific species there. So lemon, shark and 
for example, lemon shark are, are really, I mean, they're, they just swim up and, and they're really chill and really relaxed. Um, they also might have tiger sharks, which people are kind of familiar with. Tiger sharks are very big um, and they're a little impish. So they kind of like to get into stuff. So you have to really have maybe a, um, a stronger presence with them. So always maintaining that eye contact, but they're just a little bit bigger. Um, when I am in Cabo, for example, um, Makos, which are one of my favorite ones, uh, they're fast, uh, and they're very, very curious. So with those guys, you're just always making sure that you have, you know, some barrier in between you and the shark. Um, but really this knowledge, uh, and basically what I've tried to do is every time I go on a trip, like, you know, I've tried to surround myself with some of the most knowledgeable experts in, in sharks. And I try and just learn as much as I can from them. Um, and I'm always going out with a, with a guide. So for example, if I'm diving with a new species, then I'm going to be, you know, really enlisting the help and, and the knowledge of, of, a, of an expert within that species. So, but really once you get in the water with them, I, I mean, they're kind of coming at you with, with a little bit of curiosity, but it's, it's for the most part, it's, it's never aggression. So, um, but I think it depends on, on which species. So, uh, last year I was in French Polynesia and we were on a trip expedition there for, I think, seven days, eight days or something. And we were diving with humpback whales. We were free diving. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, whales are just like out of this world. Mm -hmm. But I also knew it as a location for my ultimate bucket list shark. And that is the oceanic white tip. Like these are incredible animals. Um, they're globally reduced, I think by like 98% because of overfishing, but they are one of the top three kind of, they're known to be aggressive in that. Um, I mean, if, if somebody, they've, they've, they are known to attack, right? Um, but it's typically if you're in the water with them, it's always the, you know, they, these guys, you need to have the rules. So you always have to maintain eye contact with these guys. Um, they're definitely a shark presence. Um, but we ended up uh, having about 15 minutes with this one individual who was just circling around. And it was just the most incredible experience because she would come in and she would, she was not aggressive, nothing, um, maintain that eye contact and she would just circle slowly. And then, and then within 15 minutes she was gone. But it was amazing because you have all these animals who, you know, like for me, what, what was kind of going through my mind is I was soaking in the moment thinking, man, you know what, this is an inc a critically endangered species. And this might be my only opportunity in my lifetime, and I hope not, but it might be the only opportunity in my lifetime to see this animal because they're disappearing so quickly. Well, one thing we've learned from the last sort of 12-ish months of the pandemic stops yeah. anything is that humans are really bad at following instructions and they're, they're, huh. they're pretty bad at, at just being able to control themselves in a, in a manner that's actually in any way considerate of other human beings, um, let alone other animals. When it comes to this etiquette, and, and obviously with, with what you're saying and, and the way you go about it, it seems like you're coming at it with a tremendous respect for the animals that you're, you're photographing. Have you encountered perhaps people that don't follow the same rules or that they act in a way that is completely obnoxious? Or have you had any issues like that? I have seen it. Yes, I have seen it. Um, so it's typically a lack of education. Um, so for example, um, you know, divers, um, who, you know, sharks are, are, you know, really chill for the most part. And I think what has happened is that, you know, people get a little bit too comfortable and, and too complacent. Mm -hmm. And so for example, approaching the shark, um, you know, too closely, um, you know, for example, you know, touching the shark, 
if they're not, you know, if they're not redirecting it, you know. So I have seen situations uh, just on video clips um, where that's happened and the shark has maybe, you know, shown uh, displays that it was not comfortable. So mm-hmm. it were will leave and things like that. But, you know, I have seen other things, you know, of course, shark fishing, so trophy hunting, that kind of thing, trophy fishing, that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, you know, it is unfortunate, but for the most part, if you are in an area that has a large shark presence, you're always going to find people and guides who are shark lovers and shark conservationists. So typically this is, this tends to be, uh, people's first introduction in water. And so I think that the conservationists and the shark guides and things like that, um, all do such a great job for the most part of really ensuring that people understand the techniques and, and, uh, show a respect for the sharks. So it always seems like with shark diving specifically, there is such a great, um, level of education and, um, conservation that the guides are really trying to impart. So it's not like, you know, it's just a carnival ride or it's just, you know, I think that they, they're really taking that opportunity to use it as an educational tool as much as possible. So that really has helped, um, in, in benefiting the sharks, I think. Well, with every form of photography, and I think with everything that anyone tries to do, there's always hidden challenges and um, I photograph weddings. Generally speaking, people talk about bridezillas or issues with incredibly uh, deaverish brides. It's actually a really minimal side of the job. I've probably only encountered four or five in the 350-ish weddings that I've photographed. Quite often, good. you actually find the mother of the groom tends to be a lot more um, likely. Really? Yeah, it's a bizarre thing. Um, and huh. kind of... Kind of similar to what you're saying about people that get a little bit too confident. I've certainly seen some photographers and videographers get a little bit too confident with people that aren't the bride and it's backfired on them. With <laughs> photographing marine life and, you know, the, the diving and the, I'm imagining the fitness has to be absolutely insane. What are the hidden challenges of what you do? Mm, that's a good, that's a great question. Well, conditions are, you know, I mean, you really have to be, um, I think you're just, for me, it's challenging when I'm less in control of the actual environment. So, you know, you, you're kind of, it's more of a passive, um, style of shooting because you really don't have control. Um, you don't have control about the conditions such as current, you know, sometimes the current has been ripping. uh, And for example, on, on one dive, I was in, uh, or was it was in Cocos Island, which is a little island that's um, a little outside of Costa Rica, to I think 340 miles or something like that. And it, this was this one dive site called Alcyon, and amazing site. It was actually you know named by Jacques Cousteau, amazing site. But the current is absolutely ripping there. And so we uh, were just about to fall off the back of the Zodiac to get down to the, the site. And I do a back roll off the, the Zodiac and try and get down. And the current just takes my camera and uses it like a sail. And within three seconds, I'm like whisked away and wasn't able to get back down to the site. So it's, it's things like that mm-hmm. where you're, you're trying to struggle with so many different different things. The lighting is always challenging. Um, you know, of course you have the marine life, um, you know, it, it's great in that it feels very three dimensional for me. I think when I'm, when I'm shooting in that, you know, it's always very challenging. I feel like a lot of people would think that there's only one species of shark and you've mentioned jaws. And I think a lot of people only really know great whites as as yeah. like the only household name which is uh, as a man, as a man who was a fan of the movie deep blue sea uh, i'm definitely aware of mako's i've seen blue sharks uh, for real um in uh, my life they look like beaker have you from the yes Muppets? they do they, their mouth looks like it was an afterthought <laughs> like it looks like when <laughs> when they designed that animal they were like oh shit we forgot the mouth and they just like tacked it on at the end it's a very bizarre looking animal <laughs> So yeah. something I feel like people would do in, in your position, or at least I feel like I would do maybe, is chase hero shots, is to chase the the really obvious, 
you know, the big bitey, aggressive looking moments of, of, of sharks do, doing what sharks do in most people's nightmares. How hard <laughs> is it to, to avoid that? Because I guess as well, the one thing that you have as a problem with that is that it, it kind of adds to the stereotype, right? It, it, it does. I mean, but, but also, I mean, when you think of how wildly successful and popular Shark Week is, people love it. You know, so people love the wide open, the sharks being shark shots. And in, in actuality, I think they're very, very difficult to get. So the ones, uh, the images that you see of, of sharks really with gaping mouths and things like that, it's typically very, very good photographers who are taking that because they have to have a very they have to be experienced enough to understand the shark behavior. They have to be comfortable enough to get very close to the sharks. So, you know, it's not a, an image that somebody who's out on their first, you know, shark trip would be able to get typically. So yeah, that those, those images are, are great. I think they serve their purpose. Um, but because they, they really capture people's attention, but also I think if it was a hundred percent, those types of images all, all the time, it really doesn't show, I think the true nature of sharks, which is typically, you know, I mean, they're, they're curious animals and yes, they have their rule in the ocean, but they're not just like mindless killer. Yeah. I think that's just the Hollywood version of it. Um, one thing I find with photography, and if you ever find yourself bored and want to do a search on YouTube for just photography fails, it tends to almost <laughs> always show people who are way too focused on what they're photographing to sense the danger that's around them. Whether yeah. it be someone like wandering out near a train to get a picture down in the complete opposite direction, anything like that. It's incredible how focused they do tend to be men, to be fair, but it's amazing how focused... <laughs> Uh, you can be, when you're looking through a camera, you almost feel like nothing outside of the viewfinder exists. Have you ever had a situation where you've been like really focused or really excited or really into what you're photographing and kind of not maybe had a full scope of what was going on around you? Uh, tunnel vision. Yes. I mean, I think that that's, that's easy to do. I think when I'm, if I'm in the water with sharks, um, I work with, you know, I love, I've got this great crew that I, I always love to shoot with them just because I trust, I trust them so much. They're um, amazing shark professionals. And so I, I feel like they always have my back, but let's see. Um, you know, I, another species that tends to be a little bit more impish is sea lions so mm -hmm. I've done, I'm from Canada, as I mentioned, and, you know, I've done some work in, in, uh, this one little Island called Hornby Island, which is amazing little location. And during the, the winter time, they have massive colonies of giant sea lions and these are juveniles. So juvenile sea lion, it sounds small, but they're, they're not, they're, um, some of them can get, you know, about the size of a little compact car and they Wowzers. get really impish. Yeah. And so the, at these rickeries, you know, a lot of them are very, very playful and they're not, uh, they're not scared of humans whatsoever. And so if you're focused on something, what they'll often try and do is come up behind you and they'll try and like nip on your fin to see what you're about, or they'll maybe try and like, you know, mouth on your hood a little bit. Like, it's like being at a six-year-old's birthday party <laughs> and all they've had is cake and Mountain Dew for like the last 12 hours. <laughs> so that's, that's one kind of area of, you know, marine life where you have to kind of be a little bit more aware of your surroundings. Definitely with sharks, you do too. Like you, you can't just, you definitely cannot be focused on your viewfinder. It's you you definitely have to have your eye on the swivel for sure. But I've never really had any, any issues with the sharks just because, you know, Hey, I've, I've got, I feel like I always, I'm learning as much as I can every time I'm in the water from people who are much better. Um, and, and then to just not having your eye on the viewfinder, you know, you're really kind of keeping your camera positioned in front of you rather than looking at the viewfinder, you're keeping it in front of you. Um, and then kind of shooting that way, which, which was interesting when you're first learning, because you get a lot of like the reframing was a little bit challenging. So, uh, but you get used to it. Yeah. I mean, how do how do you go about learning composition? Because that's, 
that's a hell of a, an on-the-job experience when you've also got to be aware of the animals and movement and stuff. Like at least with photographing people, you can kind of photograph family members and figure stuff out before you go and do it for realsies. Whereas, you know, you can't go and, you know, pop into the back garden to the paddling pool and find the great white shark to photograph in different ways and see what works. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and this is the thing because everything is moving. You know, you're on a three-dimensional plane. Everything is moving. The animals are moving. So it's not, you can't say, hey, just hold still. Ah, can you move to the left? No. You know, you, you really have to just, you know, shoot on the fly. And and a lot of it is just experience. So, you know, um, thank goodness uh, it's a digital age because I've got a lot of really, really awful shots. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and I mean, I feel better about the bad ones that I've got, but I'm not really contesting with with sharks. Um, let's talk about gear. As a rule, generally speaking, yeah. on the podcast, I don't talk about gear because the majority of the time it's just uh, middle-aged wannabe car salesmen talking about how many megapixels they've got and it's quite boring. But gear in, in your situation, I couldn't actually go out and do what you do with what I have right now. So not, well, firstly, because I'm in England and all of our water here is brown and cold and is about as, <laughs> about inviting as a, as a cup of cold sick. But if I wanted to go out and, and photograph underwater, you know, what gear have you got to have to, to go and do what you do? Yeah. Well, I, I mean... A lot of people can start out first using uh, just even a GoPro. GoPros right now are amazing. But once you get a little bit more into it, then you're looking at uh, a DSLR, uh, your camera, and then the housing. So the housing is very, it's camera specific. um, And it's kind of a hard external shell that's water pressured. Uh, It's usually depth rated to, you know, a couple hundred feet. And then that allows you full manual control. So, you know, underwater cameras and underwater photography, you know, it can be, especially once you start getting into it, it's, it's definitely pricey just because the housings themselves are, are, you know, fairly expensive. And then you have an acrylic dome or a glass dome that goes in front of your camera lens. And that's what allows it to focus and, and protects that lens. So, you know, lots of different, lots of different pieces of equipment uh, to purchase, but if you just want to get going, little little GoPro is great. You need to put on like a a red filter on there, a color correcting filter, and they even have some kind of like mid range ones, which are um, a little bit up from like a GoPro, but they incorporate the camera in inside, and then a little bit more of a you know a consumer version of a housing um so those ones are you know a couple hundred bucks so you can get into it relatively cheaply but by the time if you want to take it serious it it's a it can be a pretty significant investment well it's a pretty good combination of two incredibly expensive hobbies so ah yeah right <laughs> yeah i mean that's really that's really picking them in terms of uh, focal length are you are you limited because of that that dome in front of your lens are you limited in in what your focal length can be you know, that's a really good question. I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Cause it feels like underwater, you have like a limited distance that you can really see clearly in most cases anyway. So you can't really go ultra long regardless. I just thought maybe there was, yeah. a, maybe that was a factor. You know, because I think it would, uh, I mean, really you're, you're, you're limited by your visibility you know, so, um, because the water visibility changes so much. Um, so that would be, I think, a, a, a bigger factor than, than, than that, but. And then the shot selection process, you get back from, from one of these trips and you've got, you know, like you say, just tons and tons of images because of the joys of digital. What, what makes yeah. it for you, what makes a, a great image of what you've taken? What does it have to have? Well, for me, I, I you know, I, I just get a little bit of a, if I see something that I like and sometimes, you know, I'll only catch it later, but number one, I I like the light. I have to like the light. And then two, you know, I I try and shoot for something that I haven't seen before. Um, And that's kind of what I'm trying to go for. And then three, it just has to give me a a feeling like I get like a little, yeah. And then I'm sure you, you get that feeling too, right? When you have that image that you really like, and it's yeah. just like, 
you get excited about it. That's the, that's the emotion that I'm looking for, um, or, or that I, I try and shoot for, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically going through a lot of different photos and then, and then trying to shoot a little bit creative, more creatively as soon as, you know, if I, if I've been shooting, um, a specific subject or location, you know, it always takes me a while before I really feel more comfortable getting the basics. And then I can feel like I can start getting a little bit more creative in, in what I'm trying to achieve. And a lot of times it doesn't work, <laughs> you know, but you have to just be willing to, um, you know, try something different. But I think the biggest thing has to be the light. Yeah. Which is always the most underestimated factor for people getting into photography because it's always every problem solvable with with buying a new toy that will fix all your problems. And I think just learning light is really important regardless of of how you're approaching things. One thing that I feel like you have to suffer from doing what you're doing, um, and I had to really wean myself out of this issue, is like uh, becoming emotionally attached to moments. So when I'm photographing Mm. someone, I might be having like an awful time shooting or I might be having a great time shooting. And the images, I would negatively or positively look on images based on my emotion of what was going on at the time that I took the image, as opposed to what the image actually is to the person that's Ah. not going to understand that emotion. Do you ever have that? Because I feel like there must be such a rush of enjoyment of what you're doing that you could end up getting attached to images that maybe aren't living up or, or vice versa. Absolutely. Yes. Because I mean, there's such a personal connection, like for example, um, you know, when I was, shoot, I, when I was photographing humpbacks, um, so I, I haven't done, that was my first whale trip. Uh, I don't photograph a lot of whales and uh, the first time that you see them, it's amazing. Like it, it, they're so large that it actually, your brain takes a minute to just register it, Like it's confusing for your brain because it, it's not used to seeing an animal this this large. And so when I got back and when I started kind of editing some of my photos from the humpbacks, like it, I don't know, the emotion just wasn't, the emotion wasn't there. Like it, it was, but I have a feeling like I was more wrapped up in the moment of like, like, I can't believe what's in front of me yeah. versus actually you know, being able to process that enough to kind of focus on shooting. So yeah, it, it definitely, the emotion does, does play into factor. And then two, I think if you're photographing something that, you know, something a little bit more conservation based where it's sad or it's difficult to see, then, then that has, uh, you know, comes into play as well. So you're swimming, you're photographing, you're around dangerous animals, potentially. But you're around animals that you have to respect one way or the other. The whole situation is is just a whole bunch of moving parts that you're trying to navigate yeah, through. Yeah. I'm assuming then that if you were to switch to or even just take a punt at photographing in Yellowstone, that it would almost feel like you needed to add to the challenge. It would be a little bit too easy for you. Uh, well, I I, I don't wanna, I don't know. I mean. I would feel out of my element because I don't really know any of those species, but you know, gravity, I would be grateful for the gravity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> that would make things a little bit, a uh, little bit easier, you know, but yeah, I don't know. It's definitely different. It's definitely different just because I think, you know, normal wildlife photography, if you're on land, I still think it's the same thing. You, I think you have to really know your subject well, and mm-hmm. you have to spend your your time really understanding your subject in order to capture it. Which, you know, I think is 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 similar in any genre. You know, I mean, for brides, you know, for wedding photography, you have to really understand, you know, all the moving parts. It's it's definitely the case. Um, with with you know, all of the things that you've experienced, all of the places that you've been, all of the animals that you've been surrounded by. Is there anything that's kind of, you know, the cherry on on the icing on the cake at this point that you'd really be looking forward to potentially getting the chance to photograph at some point? Oh, um, yeah, I would, I mean, 
I'm in such a, I'm, I don't know. I'm in such a great spot right now. Like I, I love, I love what I'm doing within the sea of Cortez and I'm just so excited to do more of it. You know, it's such an ecologically unique area um, that attracts a wide variety of different sharks. So, I mean, I love Mako's. They're just such a fascinating animal. And, you know, I feel like I'm just on the beginning of this journey. Um, You know, I'm just right at the very, very beginning of kind of, you know, scratching the surface of, of kind of my understanding on them. So I'm just really excited for that of where I, where I'm at. I mean, of course, you know, I would love to photograph great whites, definitely. Um, but I think, uh, I think the Makos from me are, are, are where it's at. Well, I remember hearing a story a long time ago. I think it was for a family friend who'd said that someone that, and this is how all stories go in England, by the way, it's someone who you know <laughs> telling you a story about someone that they know. So you've got no chance of this being factual. But they went to uh, South Africa to do the cage diving. Nice. Yeah. And they were very excited about it. And what ended up happening was uh, they were just robbed on a boat. And then that was it. They, yeah. And I actually thought what? there was something like it was the story. I'm not going to go into the whole story because it's, it's obviously not the most lighthearted thing in the world. But I laughed <laughs> so hard because... I love this idea of being like all apprehensive and nervous. You're about to meet an apex predator. You're about to see uh-huh. something that you have, like as a human being, we feel like we control everything, but this is an animal that you have no hope one-on-one of, of being in control of. You just have to hope that you can mitigate the situation and you just end up getting robbed by a human. I always thought that was just such a funny story. <laughs> now, Oh my goodness, it's awful. Something that is coming up more and more here is is your wonderful Canadian accent. And I'm a, I'm a huge <laughs> ice hockey fan. And one thing I know about ice hockey is that you can always teach people how to control the puck, how to use a stick. But if they're not good on yeah. their skates, they're never going to be worthwhile. So the first yeah, thing that true. really you have to have is that ability to skate. That has to be the fundamental. I'm assuming if someone was listening to this and thinking, I'd love to go and photograph underwater I'm assuming the first thing they've got to do is really learn how to dive at a really high level. Yeah, correct. I mean, yes, you, you do. You you have to you have to have good control of your buoyancy. Um, so your buoyancy is how you're floating in the water column, and so your buoyancy has to be pretty second nature. Um, but you know, I think some people start getting into photography when they maybe have 25, 30 dives, just, you know, something simple with a little GoPro, but it depends on people's comfort in the water as well. You know, so you don't have to have like thousands of dives before you pick up your camera. And in fact, you know, one of the kind of, you, you first get your initial certification, your dive certification, and then you do what's called the advanced diving course and that kind of it's not advanced but it just gives you a taste of different types of diving and you can take that right after your open water and one of the dives is underwater photography so you can learn a little bit about you know how cameras work and you take it out in the pool and then you do a couple of dives with a with an underwater camera but you're able to limit your environment. So, you know, maybe you're going to take it to a site that you've been with before or, you know, with a buddy that, you know, is going to kind of stay right with you. So there's definitely ways that you can get into it and ease into it, um, you know, that are safety, that are safe ways to do it. But, you know, you're not going to, you know, straight out of the gate, going to go to, you know, super deep or challenging dive and then just add on a camera you know that that's that's what we call sometimes is task loading so you have to manage your task loading so that you're only really trying one or two new things at a time you know and then everything else you want to keep consistent um and that's kind of a safety well i feel like i've got to ask this question because it's been asked of me about 40 or 50 times a week for the last couple of weeks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have you watched Seaspiracy? Because over here, everybody's talking about it. I haven't watched it, but the amount of people that have asked me about it, when it seems to be completely unrelated to who I am, it feels like you must have watched it. 
I, you know what? I haven't actually, I have not, um, not yet. Um, but again, the same thing, everybody asked me that same thing, same thing with my octopus teacher, which again, I haven't seen that either. It looks amazing. I don't um, even know what that is. What's that? My octopus teacher, it was, I think it was a Netflix, um, but is it charming? And I think, you know what, I think he was based in England or based in the UK. Anyway, it was about, it's a lovely little story of a free diver. I think he was also a university professor or something. And he developed this wonderful relationship with, with an octopus. Um, that sounds like a great like Disney very, story. Very yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But no, I, I haven't, I've seen a little bit of the back and forth um, about sea spirit or sea spiracy. Um, and, you know, I, probably should see it before I make any comments on it. Um, I think- well, I feel like they could have tried a lot harder with the name. That's the one thing I would say is the name's a bit, it feels a bit rushed. It feels like a, yeah. a, a blue shark's Seaspiracy. mouth. Seaspiracy. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, it's just uh, the two vowel Seaspiracy. You know what I mean? It doesn't just like trip off the, yeah, trip off the, the tongue. So, no. yeah, but I mean, I think it, I think it, from what I understand, it really does address kind of, the shocking reality of the, just the, the, just the pillaging that's happening with overfishing and that absolutely needs to be addressed because it's something in my, you know, I've been diving for a, a while and definitely you're seeing it. We're seeing the effects of overfishing, yeah. like hundred, you know, hundred percent, um, you know, with, and not just like a lack of fish, which is something that i seen personally but you know within the marine life like the marine life we're having to adapt you know by by hunting things that they normally don't eat by changing their behaviors you know it's crazy i I blame pescatarians personally i think it's all their fault (laughs) okay so it's been so fantastic to talk to you thank you so much for your time but i have to finish with one question um, and then i will let you go uh so you started skydiving then you moved yes. on to deep sea diving and photographing apex predators and, and scary animals completely out of your comfort zone. Um, do you feel like the photography would ever be enough for you, considering it seems like you're constantly trying to find different ways to kill yourself? <laughs> no, this is it. This is, this is, this is it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, uh, I basically, I stopped skydiving. And now hundred percent is trying to, you know, trying to throw myself into the sea. (laughs) Why did you stop skydiving? Is it just, because I feel like that's not something that's an itch that would ever be scratched. Um, I can't Uh, imagine wanting to jump out of a plane in the first place. I'm shaking my head violently, but. Well, the funny thing is, is I think I got into it a little bit by accident and I, it was an amazing thing because it really, it forces you to really just can, for me, I confronted a huge fear, right? Like I thought for no way there, there was no way I was going to survive that skydive. And when I was just stepping outside of that plane for the very first time, facing an incredible amount of fear and doing it anyway, Man, that year I accomplished more in in six months to a year than I think I had in the free, previous five years, just because it gave it shape, it changed my feelings on fear. Wow! There you go. Yeah. Everyone should go jump out of a plane. Yeah, got to do it once. Got to, I think, got to do it once. My wife really wants to. I'm absolutely petrified of heights, so it's probably not going to happen. But I'll cheer her on from the ground. <laughs> Most important part of the podcast is that we're pushing as many people as possible towards work that I like so that I become a human algorithm. So where's the best place for people to go where they can find your photography? Oh, awesome. Um, Instagram. Yeah. So definitely that's where I tend to post most of my stuff. So Instagram is at Samantha Schwan. Also, you know, please say hello on Facebook again at Samantha Schwan. And then my website, which is www.samanthaschwan.com. It's ironic that you're called Schwan and you photograph sharks. I really wasn't going to make that joke, but I have to do it. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. 